0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. As you know, this podcast is really simply an excuse for me to talk to people that uh, I think are interesting, moving the wealth management industry forward into new and interesting areas. And today I'm thrilled to be speaking to Larry Suedro. Larry is a longtime market commentator, uh, uh, principal research officer at Buckingham Asset Management, Uh, and a well-known author uh, among advisors, probably starting with his first book, The Only Guide to a Winning Investment Strategy You'll Ever Need, I think came out in the later 90s, followed by several books, uh, including The Incredibly Shrinking Alpha, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, which is a a great, fantastic read on on the shrinking fortunes of of stock pickers, uh, active stock pickers. And, And we'll get into that a little bit now. But Larry, thanks very much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, David.
0: Uh, also, I should say, a columnist for wealthmanagement. Uh, dot com. So we appreciate your contributions there. Thank you. How do you describe yourself professionally? Maybe we should kick off here. You know, what when you think about how you talk about yourself professionally, what you do? How do you describe it? Is it a writer, a market commentator uh, uh, with Buckingham Asset Management? How do you describe yourself?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, I think of myself as my ma- main role is to educate people. Uh and uh I've guest lectured at Stanford and some other university I'd always wanted to be a teacher and when I uh, left uh, Prudential Home Mortgage when my company was sold I had got lucky enough I could have retired I was gonna go and look for a teaching job and then friends of mine had told me they had started an investment advisory firm and they were great financial planners they just didn't know happen to know anything about managing risks of all kind, which I had spent my entire career doing, uh, working uh, for uh, some of the largest financial institutions in the world, Citicorp Prudential, managing trading rooms for them, foreign exchange interest rate risk, credit risk, and also advising Citicorp's investment bank customers, some of the largest multinationals in the world, on managing risks of all kind. So I joined them to They took their planning skills and my market knowledge and I became an educator for them to educate investors because I think one of the great tragedies in America, David, is despite the importance of money, not money itself, but what it does for us, provide a good education for our children, a nice retirement, vacations, whatever is important to you about money, donating money to charity. Unless you get an MBA in finance today, And it has to be in finance. It's highly unlikely you've even taken a single course in capital markets theory. So where does the average person get their investment knowledge? Well, they tend to get it from someone like Jim Cramer or Barron's or wherever. Uh, And that's a try. So uh, I set out to try to educate investors, telling them, here's what the academic research showed. Here's, well, one, what does the academic research look into? what does it find and then what are the implications for investors Uh, and that's what i view my role is uh, as head of financial uh, and economic research at buckingham is to give people the information they need to make the most informed decision so they can develop a strategy that gives them the best chance of achieving their goals
0: yeah, for sure, and and certainly clients of Buckingham uh, benefit from that. They understand, you know, that the advisor is helping them craft a, an investment portfolio that works best for them. It's interesting you talk about the notion of Jim Cramer and CNBC and the the shouting heads and 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 this. I was going to get into this a bit later, but we might as well do it now. The active stock manager for a long time, you've made the argument that there is no benefit to active stock picking, or at least uh, the average investor cannot predict who, what manager will uh, be able to beat the market on any given year. It seems like that's, in our world anyway, kind of accepted wisdom at this point. Yet, we see an increasing proliferation of active stock managers we see uh, the the retail investor increasingly participating in the markets with you know their meme stocks and uh, Reddit boards and what how how come that message is not getting through? Uh, that's that a, yeah. that's know, a they're... really
1: interesting question. Uh, and I I would uh, give some data here to help. If you think sure. back seventy years, David, how many mutual funds do you think there were?
0: Oh, I would just take to.
1: a wild guess.
0: Seventy years ago, did you say? Yeah. Today, Hi. by
1: the way, there are tens of ten thousand or more, and there are thousands of ETFs, and there are ten thousand or more hedge funds. So we yeah. have, you know, how many mutual funds? Because there weren't even hedge funds or ETFs back then. Sure. So in the fifties,
0: I'm going to say a two hundred.
1: Well, you're not. You're pretty close. It was about a hundred. Okay. And even in that period. Active managers were basically playing a loser's game because the evidence showed that only about 20% of them were outperforming on a risk adjusted basis. That's why Charles Ellis, he wrote probably the most famous book on this issue winning the loser's game. He said, Yeah, you know, you can win 20%, at least before taxes were winning, but 80% lose. So the surest way to win a loser's game is don't play. Mm-hmm surest way to win in Las Vegas, don't walk into the casino and use your money there. You. Uh, today, the research shows, and that's what we showed in uh, Andy Birkin and my book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. The evidence is that that number has shrunk down to about 2%, which after taxes is about 1%. So you have incredible odds against you winning that game and it's not that investors are totally unaware there's been a big trend although a slow one towards investors abandoning the game of active management 25 years ago when i started in this business in the very low single digits of individual investor money was invested in index or similar funds today that number is probably more like 40 percent and of all uh, invested money. It's like 50%. So it's it, it, we really should acknowledge this trend, but still, half of the world, maybe or a bit more, is still trying to play a game that they're highly unlikely to win. And as you mentioned, it's not just the retail investors that are unlikely to win, but the research shows that there is no one has yet found a way to identify the few active managers are likely to outperform. And the problem is, when it comes to investing, I think the biggest mistake that individuals make is they think when it comes to judging performance, three years is a long time and five years is a really long time and 10 years is an eternity. The problem is if you have 10,000 money managers out there, randomly you would expect maybe 100 of them to beat the market over 10 years or more than that. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to distinguish luck from skill. They throw out, I hear, well, my fund manager beat the market for 10 years. Clearly that's skill. So I give a few examples like this. In the 1970s, David, you've been around a while. Who do you think most people would guess was the best mutual fund manager, best top performing fund? Uh, Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch. Unfortunately, he wasn't. He was just number two. Why hmm. would you invest with Lynch when you could invest in 44 Wall Street? Run by a fellow named I think his name was David Baker. Well, in the next decade, when the market soared in the 80s, 44 Wall Street lost 77% of its asset, uh, of its value. Another great example, I'm sure you rec- uh, remember the person who beat the S&P 15 years in a row. That can't be luck. You remember who that was?
0: No, remind me. Uh,
1: Leg Mason uh, okay. was, All right. Right, was the fund. Uh, and he had beat. well, the next 10 years he did so poorly, he got fired and had dramatically underperformed. And, and so, but people ignore that evidence generally. And even the consultants to pension plans like SCI and Goldman Sachs and others, they have been unable to identify the future winners. And a great example is several studies that have found this, pension plans hire managers who have outperformed in the recent past and they fire managers who have underperformed. However, it turns out if they had done nothing the ones who had underperformed and they fired went on to outperform the ones they hired. There's this recency bias. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yet they keep repeating the same mistakes, which Einstein said is the definition of insanity. If you use a strategy to pick future winners and it doesn't work, why do you think the next time you're going to do it, it's going to work? But people keep repeating that process. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, I guess it's uh, no one gets fired necessarily for picking the recent winner, I guess. Uh maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know. Um the you know, the this rise of the number of funds and active managers and you mentioned, you know, a hundred back then and tens of thousands now. You know, more more funds really than stocks. Uh, you know, more ways to slice and dice the market. More. There's less
1: and, than and four thousand stocks today.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And the um notion that this blurred line between active management and passive management is also kind of interesting to me and as these index strategies proliferate and for a while there we had a big trend of you know the smart beta uh trend uh i know you've spoken about that quite a lot there must have been hundreds of different kind of methodical you know rules based but uh a a kind of a a kind of a quasi-active approach to the market, where, where do you where do we stand on the smart beta uh yeah. funds now and and that kind of blurred line between active and passive?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I, I would say generally speaking, smart beta is an oxymoron, yeah. <laughs> uh, that term because beta is just a measure of how much risk you take relative to the market, it's neither smart nor dumb, it's just beta. Now, I there are some things that we do know, there is a small group of stocks we can call them lottery stocks that have had god-awful returns and no one should own them basically at least at the prices that they traded at historically yet retail or dumb naive money dramatically overweights it and the smarter institutions who are aware of the problems ignore them so among those stocks are penny stocks stocks in bankruptcy Small cap growth stocks with high investment and low profitability—they have actually underperformed T-bills and stocks in bankruptcy. People think, "Well, I only paid sixty cents for it; I can only lose sixty cents." No, you can lose hundred percent of your money, and mm-hmm. only one percent of stocks that are in bankruptcy ever pay out. So, what you could do is create, say, an index that was smarter, and say, "I'll buy all stocks in the, let's say, the market, but." screen out these lottery stocks that to me could be a smart beta there are also some dumb indexes that should never have been used the russell 2000 in its original form was a really bad index to use and uh, it underperformed similar indices of small cap stocks by as much as two percent a year and vanguard originally had created an index fund that tracked it. And finally, Gus Souter said, this is a dumb index. We'll confront run it and cause me to lose 2% a year. So he abandoned it and they switched to, I think, the CRISP 610 and they switched to the MSCI 1750, which are better designed indices. So I don't want to disparage the tone totally. I think intelligent design Uh, using the academic research can help improve because there are some negatives of pure indexing where your Mm. goal is simply to replicate an index. For example, I'll use this. And let's just think of that Russell 2000. Well, if a stock is ranked 1,001, it's now in the Russell 2000. If it's ranked 999, it's in the Russell 1000. Well, what if you have two stocks that are 9.99 or 101? When they do a reconstitution, the next year they've reversed positions. Okay. Well, now you, the one fund has to buy the other sells, and from a risk perspective, they're exactly identical stocks. So it's dumb to trade it. So intelligent design, which DFA was famous for implementing, they said, let's create, if you will, a buffer zone where if something moves above that 2,000, you know, into that, uh, out of that 2,000 index, it's now 99, we won't buy anymore, but we won't sell it until maybe it gets to 800. Now it's a different stock with different risks. So there are intelligent designs. So the way I think about, this word, I don't like the terms passive and active, although that's general used. I think it's much more helpful to think of active, which means you're engaging in individual stock selection and or market timing, and systematic, transparent, replicable strategies that are all active in one sense, in how they define their eligible universe, But once Mm -hmm. they define, then there's no individual stock selection market timing, uh, but they will also engage in intelligent trading to minimize trading costs. So for example, today, the smart funds to minimize trading costs, almost all the trades are in 100 share lots to minimize uh, market impact costs. Now, Mm -hmm. so you're going to have a little bit of tracking variance, and you're using an algorithmic program to do your trading. So there, you could say that's active if you want, but it's no individual stock selection marketer. So that's, I think, systematic, transparent, replica to me is what investors should be looking for and avoiding active management. Let me add one last thing. Market efficiency is why index or systematic funds do outperform because they have lower costs, right? They have lower expense ratios and they tend to have lower turnover. So they have lower implementation costs. And the market efficiency protects them from being exploited by active investors. Not perfectly because there are these limits to arbitrage that prevent smart investors from correcting, say, GameStop, right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fear of shorting with its unlimited losses right so that's a problem so we it's not perfectly efficient okay yep. so so what happens now active management is also can't exploit the dumb investors but and the dumb investors are protected so but what if you take an active fund that uses intelligent design and is highly diversified. And like Vanguard has their active funds have costs similar, at least not much more. You can add value through intelligent design, better trading, and you should be able to basically have similar returns to a low cost passive strategy. The, I still wouldn't use basically an active strategy because it's going to be generally less diversified. And I'm ceding control of my asset allocation. But the research shows that David Nijian recently published a paper showing that if you use low-cost funds and their turnover is low, and if you look at Vanguard, how their funds have done, which I have looked at, against their passive strategies, which are in some cases dumb indices that could be better designed, you get very comparable performance i think even vanguard's funds active have slightly outperformed probably not on a statistically significant basis so active management fails not because it's dumb but because it's expensive and trades too much
0: got it uh, so you don't hold any uh truck with this argument that uh the markets are over indexed and uh you know forcing some of these bad companies into, uh, indexes and kind of automatically being in, uh, distorts market price discovery.
1: Yeah. Let let's, we can expose that pretty simply, right? Number one is, uh, 70 years ago, I told you there were a hundred mutual funds. We have over 10,000. So, and the market was pretty efficient in the fifties. It's much more efficient today. Because you know we only have less than two percent of active managers winning, so how could you argue that there's mispricing? Where's the evidence that the active managers are exploiting that mispricing? It doesn't exist. So the argument is garbage. Now, having said that, because of the the, the innovations in trading, with we have now. Decimal trading, first of all, so it's much prices can be thinner uh, and electronic trading and it's much cheaper and no uh, transactions costs of very low commissions. The cost of trading small amounts has come way. That's the good news. But because the bid offer spreads are so narrow today, all the market makers that used to be there and make markets because there was a spread that gave them a profit opportunity to take the risk that some active manager knew something and could be exploited. They're all gone. So market impact costs have gone way up. The markets are highly illiquid relative to where they were. There's a recent study out of the University of Chicago that said today, because of that, $1 additional movement in cash flows is driving $5 in value. That's why you see so much volatility today, especially in the individual stocks and even intraday with ETF, the market has become much less liquid. What that means is if you're an active manager and have to move big positions, which indexers or systematic never do, your trading costs are gonna be much higher, which increases the hurdle. That's one of the reasons why active management is becoming more and more difficult my book goes into four main reasons why active management is becoming harder and harder but so investors need to be aware of that the markets are becoming more illiquid and i mean likely prices are more volatile and you're going to need stronger stomachs and you see prices like game and other things running up and collapsing much more than they have in the past
0: So let's talk about how uh the asset management industry is continuing to try to make money in a world where everyone's going towards low-cost indexing esg you know uh, it seems to be a the the trend now and you know are are these simply ways that asset managers can kind of layer on an extra fees onto a fund or is there something there with esg that
1: I think it's some of both. One, they recognize the opportunity and there are extra costs. If you're going to add in screening, somebody's got to do the research. So they're going to be, by definition, more expensive. I wrote a book, uh, was published last year with my good friend, Sam Adams. You're a complete, uh, uh, sorry, your essential guide to sustainable investing. And here's what the research shows which is exactly what economic theory would predict. And we walk everybody through, we cite 60 academic papers, which typical of my books, it's not my opinions. We present the facts so you can make an informed decision. So here's the simple thing. The good news is if you're an ESG investor, you probably have safer investments. Why? Quite simply, the company object to oil spills and mining disasters because they take better care of their employees and safety. They're probably less subject to consumer boycotts uh, and those kinds of things. You're going to see less incidents, right? Uh, And you're less subject to government regulations, which could harm your business because you're moving in that direction. Well, if you're a safer investment Should you expect higher or lower returns?
0: Well, traditionally lower, correct?
1: Ah, Not traditionally. That's fact. We know, Mm. right? And and why does that happen? Because people are willing to pay a higher price to get that safety. Okay. The second uh, thing is there's a preference here going on. So if enough, if you or I just screen out some company because we don't like it, it's not going to have any impact. But if 40% of all investors, and that's what we're approaching, for our ESG, that means lots of them screen them out, then those companies are going to have less demand for their stock, The stock prices will go down relative to their earnings, while the green stocks will go up. Well, if you have higher prices, but the earnings are the same, you're liking the company doesn't mean they're going to have higher earnings right? But you pay a higher price, well, higher prices for the same earnings means lower return. So both from an investor preference and a risk story, either way, behavioral or risk, ESG should get lower returns, but with less downside risk in the portfolio, less volatility. So there's a trade-off there that investors rationally can make. Now, I want to add one thing, there was a really good paper called, uh, I think it was called Shifting Equilibrium. The academic research shows that if you're an ESG investor, you probably, if you don't consider factor exposures, we could talk about that in a minute, you should expect to underperform, let's call it, by 2% a year. The sin stocks, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, are the three highest performing industries. Outperform the market by two to three percent a year. Why? Because so many people screen them out; they have lower stock prices. Reflect that, and you, as the investor, because they have a higher cost of capital, you get that higher return.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So this research paper said, "Well, there's been a shift in the equilibrium as more people have invested in ESG strategies." It was a very slow trend, just like indexing which Bogle started in 77, by the late 90s, it was still in single digits. And then it took off after the bear market in 2000 when the tech bubble burst. And today it's like, let's call it 40 or 50%. Well, ESG was a tiny trend in the 90s and early 2000. Then you had the Paris Accords, and then you had big climate issues around 16, 17. And all of a sudden the trickle of flows Became tens of billions a month. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is the green stocks PEs went way up and the green and the brown stock PEs went down. And so that created short term capital gains for the green stocks and short term losses for the brown stocks. But higher prices eventually mean lower future returns, and lower prices for the brown stocks mean. Higher future expected return. So what happened is this study looked at it and said, while the green stocks should have been expected to underperform by say 3% a year, I think if that of that paper right, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they actually outperformed by seven. And people jumped on this bandwagon. And a lot of research papers made the mistake of saying green stocks have higher performance. What they forgot to do, which this paper did is account for the change in the pe ratios which can't be repeated right Mm -hmm. Uh, at least not indefinitely and if you took out the change in pe's they would have underperformed so all of the outperformance was due to the shifting equilibrium now what we could see is a continued trend towards more green because all the surveys show about 70 to 80 percent of the money is eventually in the next 15 years expected to move in that direction mm-hmm. so maybe there's enough cash flows coming in to at least offset that minus two to three percent expected difference in returns and maybe even give a profit but at some point we reach that equilibrium then the green discount if you will and expect the returns will be even bigger and bigger and you should expect lower returns but again less risk and that's a it's perfectly rational, one could argue, to say, I'm willing to accept those lower expected returns for two reasons. One, it's less risky, and two, it's a price I'm willing to pay to express my values. Yep, That's a choice that you could make. So that's what's important. It's like, think back in the 90s, saying tech stocks far outperform when it was because their PE ratios went up, and of course, when they eventually blew up and tech stocks no longer outperform, So this is, you have to be careful to think about what's changing. And this paper did a great job when we wrote that up in our book.
0: Yeah, no, that's a a fantastic perspective. I wanted to get your thoughts too on the other place where the sort of the puck seems to be moving on uh, the asset management side, advisors get bombarded with a lot of marketing material and opportunities now for uh, alternative investing And I know that's a wide umbrella uh it covers a lot of ground uh but you know we've seen greater access to these kind of non-traded non-traditionally traded strategies through you know technology some of the platforms and I don't know you guys might use them at Buckingham I don't know uh but uh uh what what's what's your view there I mean uh should we be uh, celebrating this, uh, you know, new wide universe of of possible investment strategies, or uh, proceed with great caution.
1: Yeah, I I I'd say it's some of both. I mm-hmm. wrote a book a long time ago uh, called "The Only Guide You'll Ever Need to Alternative Investments: The Good, the Bad, the Flawed, and the Ugly," mm-hmm. and most uh, of the alternatives we put in either flawed or ugly category. <laughs> uh, Has that changed at all? Uh, if I wrote the book today, I would change that. And that's because about five years ago or so, uh, there's been a big shift in the landscape here. The SEC approved a new structure called an interval fund structure. Yes. What the interval fund structure does is it allows a new a fund, which is a 40-act fund. So you have all the SEC protections there against fraud and those kinds of things. You get full disclosure. Uh, it allows a fund to be created that while it has daily pricing, does not have daily liquidity. Although some of them you can buy daily, but you can only redeem once a quarter. Typically mm-hmm. 5%, sometimes more. A minimum, they're required under the regulations for interval funds, uh, which means you can get out a minimum of 20% a year. Mm -hmm. Now, if let's say the fund is a billion dollar fund and you have a million dollars and you're the only one to request a redemption, you'll get your whole million. If there's more than 50 million requested, you'll get a pro rata share of whatever you requested. Now, this is important because the Yales and Harvards of the world learned or discovered or figured out long ago that there are a lot of assets that have good characteristics, but they're not liquid. And if you don't need liquidity and they only need to spend, let's say, 5% of their assets a year, you can earn a illiquidity premium, which for you is close to as free a lunch as there is in investing. now here's the interesting thing i think one of the worst mistakes that individuals make is they vastly overvalue liquidity mm. and especially higher net worth individuals in our firm we work with our average client is about 2 million so they're not necessarily high net worth what we consider but they're wealthier people who have good incomes have saved, done a good job. Mm-hmm. I, I've looked at our portfolio of clients. I've asked, we have over 100 advisors. I've asked how many of our clients are who are retired even are taking more than their RMD, their required minimum distribution, which mm-hmm. at age 90 is only 10% roughly. And the answer I've gotten is virtually none, which means... You can certainly set aside some portion of your portfolio to illiquid alternatives and get that, uh, what I would call a free stop at the dessert trade. Dave, mm-hmm. what do you think the allocation of alternatives is for the Yales or the Harvards of the world? who are pretty smart investors, I think we can agree. David Swenson became famous for uh, the results he got there. Take a guess. What do you think their allocation?
0: I, I, I'm sure uh, well north of 20, probably approaching 50 percent.
1: Yeah, uh, the, our clients, and we include portfolios, the average client is probably in the 10 or 15 percent. We have some like me. I'm personally 40 percent. The harvests of the Yale's of the world are 50, 60 percent. Now, the innovation allowed people to access Investments like reinsurance funds, which are quota shares. So uh, all state insurance has too much hurricane risk in Florida. They sell it to a reinsurance company, takes that risk. Well, reinsurance companies also sell off some of that risk because they can't service all of their clients They don't have enough capital. And so there are funds have been created. Stone Ridge runs one Pioneer Mundi runs one. But it's illiquid because you're buying one year's worth of risk. Can't be in a daily liquid fund. Mm -hmm. Now, Warren Buffett owns one of the largest reinsurance companies in the world. Swiss Re and others have been around 150 years. There's clear logic that there should be a risk premium for writing that. And it's totally uncorrelated to the equity and bond markets. And it's an there's no inflation risk because it's a one year investment. Hmm. And what happened is this innovation also created some competition now, and so hedge funds, who were typically in that business, they only would access them were to pay two and twenty, and that meant. And this is why in my original book on alternatives, we put them in the flawed or ugly. Case. They were taking all the excess return right? So Absolutely. it wasn't worth it, right? Yeah. So we excluded them. But the interval fund structure created, a, and now you get funds, while they're generally not cheap, are much closer to maybe 2% or less in total and no incentive fees in many cases. For Another great category is private credit. I'll mm-hmm. just walk you through there. The financial crisis of 08 and the Dodd-Frank uh, bill basically Really created the private credit market as banks had to raise capital. They got out of middle market and small lending, and small banks became almost non-existent in the sense that there were almost no new ones created, and their cost of capital went up. And so private credit stepped in. Now, typically, again two and twenty, and then people like Blackstone came along and said why don't we open this up to our retail uh, higher net worth investors and we'll do it for less and not cheap right but they so their credit fund i think is like one and a quarter percent and then there is an incentive fee of 15 percent or something like that above say a six percent return but there are interval funds run by for example Cliffwater that i invest in where the fee is 1.64 on net assets uh, and no incentive fees. And Mm -hmm. they only charge in net assets, but they lever it up about 30%. You're allowed in an interval fund. So the fee on total assets is closer to about under Mm 1.2%. Now that fund today, which is floating rate debt of senior secured backed by private equity leading firms, Historical data shows 20-year pl- types of history, like 30 basis points of credit loss. That fund today is yielding 10 and three quarters. Mm-hmm. A similar liquid fund, BKLN, which is corporate corporate debt, liquid, and stuff, it's yielding like 4% less. So it's telling you there's a massive illiquidity premium. Well, think about this, David. You're a you're an investor and there's credit card debt. Let's say you want to invest in that. Citicorp creates a credit card with somebody and it's got a 20% interest. And let's say they expect 10% defaults and of course 1% to service it. So they expect nine. It's not a guarantee, but that's their expectation. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, we need to raise some capital. And we can lever this up by, in effect, selling it off, put it into an asset-backed security and sell it to the public. It'll be now daily liquid. Immediately, the yield will drop to somewhere probably 7%. Now, you as an investor in your IRA and you're not retired and you're not withdrawing money, what do you want to own? The credit directly earning nine or the ABS exactly the same risk Owning earning seven, hmm. to me it's it's this is a simple answer, and yet very few people will own that. The BKR fund has got billions of dollars more than probably any private credit fund does. So yes. there are a series of assets like private credit, private equity, instead of two and twenty. Now you can get it at much lower fee structures. through firms like Blackstone. There's even a private equity fund now which is really interesting that's worth people uh considering aqr has a style premium fund that invests in different factors long short stretch again in our book the only god you'll ever need to factor based investing andy burke and i created five criteria that we said should be considered before you invest and that's applicable to any investment, whether it's alternative or not, one it has to show obviously evidence of a premium above a risk, for, or you shouldn't consider. It. But the evidence has to be that the that that premium is persistent over long periods of time, pervasive around the globe, and across asset classes, if appropriate. It's robust to various definitions. So, if you're a value investor, it should work for PE or price to buck or any other measure you can think of. And it has to survive transactions costs, so it's implementable. And there has to be risk and or behavioral explanations for the premium. All the alternatives that I mentioned to you meet those criteria. So I invest in them plus things like life settlements. Right. Insurance companies don't write policies expecting to lose money. Right. Uh, and the life uh, settlements is totally uncorrelated to what the equity market is doing. Last year, the life settlement fund I invest in returned like almost 7%, while stocks and bonds lost double digits. And the fee there isn't cheap, but it's nowhere near 2 and 20. In fact, there's no incentive fee. So I think the world has come forward, competition and the interval fund structure has opened up a universe to allow investors to access other vehicles. And too many people focus solely on one, liquidity, and two, the expense ratio. But let me just touch on that with one example. So I know lots of really smart people who are advisors that say, why would you invest in say Clifford's fund with a 1.64 published expense ratio? And I could buy Vanguard's high yield fund and it's like 18 basis points. Mm-hmm. And it's daily liquid. All right, let's look at that. Vanguard's high yield fund, I think, is yielding something like six and three quarters or something like that. And it's got a five-year duration. So you're taking inflation risk there, right? Turns out that that fund, if you look at the historical data, has significantly more credit risk than the Cliffwater Fund, which has virtually zero duration and is yielding about 4% more. Now, why do you care that the fund costs 1.64% when you're getting 4% higher returns expected after the fees and you have you have no inflation, no duration. Risk, no duration as long as you don't need the liquidity. Right? So fees matter, of course, and competition eventually is causing people to lower fees. I think they'll probably come down, uh, because there is more competition in private credit. Uh, and even Cliffwater's fees have come down some as the fund has gotten much larger. Okay, so I think people make the mistake of just saying, looking at fees and instead of saying, is it value added? good example is typically over the very long term, DFA systematic structured portfolios have outperformed similar Vanguard index fund, despite their higher fees because of intelligent design, patient trading, and greater exposure to risk factors. So... Costs are important, but it's what value added brings to the table, including the diversification benefits that matter in the long run.
0: Yeah, this is great. Uh, give me real quick then uh, some of your recommendations for some of these funds. Uh, you mentioned the, the Cliffwater uh, Interval funds. What are some others that you would, would look at?
1: Yeah, so Cliffwater runs two funds, uh, one uh, which is a middle market lending fund, and then they run an extended credit fund, uh, CELFX, which invests in other things like drug law lo- lo- royalties and litigation lawsuits, stuff like that. Takes a bit more credit risk, but is more diversified. Yields another 2 to 3%. Uh, mm-hmm. There are lots of private credit funds run by people that have really good track records like Aries and Blackstone and KKR. There's... Mm-hmm. there's a dozen, I I can name, and people have to do the due diligence. And here, what's really important, this is where advisors really add a lot of value is in that due diligence. You want to look for people who are trying to hit singles and not home runs. So highly diversified, you know, senior secured, sponsored debt, backed by real assets and cash flows, not making loans to you know, companies that have a higher risk of bankruptcy, So That's one area. In the reinsurance, you have, there are cat bond funds you could look at. There's quoted share funds that Pioneer Mundi runs, Stone Ridge runs, AQR runs, style premium funds. There are others like BlackRock that also run long short portfolios. These are all vehicles that investors can look at should do their own due diligence, Mm -hmm. uh, not rely on anyone else's recommendation, except maybe an advisor uh, Mm -hmm. that they are working with. I also I mentioned life settlements is another area there's a fund run by a company, I think it's AIR. I happen that's uh, available, that's private, I invest in a company called Black Oak Alpha Growth, which just introduced a brand new interval fund that includes uh, life settlements in there. That's currently yielding. They're buying policies after uh, expenses in the low double digits. Totally uncorrelated. To me, that kind of asset that's illiquid maybe should be yielding 5 or 6% or 7 and it's yielding 10 to 12 hmm. because people are vastly overvaluing the liquidity uh, wow. aspect of it and don't really take the time to understand the issues as well.
0: Yeah, this is great. Um, we've only have a few more minutes left here before I'm going to get the hook. Uh, but I did want to just touch real quickly on uh, the current economy, the current market, where you think we're at. Uh, um, uh, it's kind of a broad question for the last few minutes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, are, are we avoiding a recession here? Are we in a recession? What's, well, what's yeah?
1: Well, I'm a trained economist. I used to sell economic forecasts for a city co-op uh, as well. And my best advice is. You know, you should ignore all forecasts and just focus because <laughs> there aren't really good ones. What you want to do is focus on what are the risks you're most concerned about, and then build a portfolio that protects you against them. So, if you are more concerned about inflation, well, you can own more shorter-term credit. You can't run away from risks. You're always going to have to take some risk, but you can choose the risks you want to take. So, if you're more susceptible to inflation risk. Don't own longer duration bonds. Find other ways to keep your returns up. And one way is to access an illiquidity premium, and but stay with short-term credit. That's it. I would urge people interested, uh, read, a, I wrote a quarterly update. I write it for Advisor Perspectives. It's on the web. You can find it on my Twitter account. It goes through a list of the four or five things that are on the positive side of the economic outlook and then about 10 on the negative side. Uh, I think clearly the risks to keep this short, I've increased the recession. People don't really understand that financial crises are really difficult to overcome because banks stop lending. What they most people don't know is the smaller regional banks make 70% of the commercial real estate loans and 40% of all business loans. Credit standards are... Re- clearly been tightening now, gotten worse because of the SVB crisis. That's Mm going to slow demand, construction, investment. Inevitably, I think we'll eventually see the labor market begin to crack. Uh, And uh, I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on corporate profit margins because the labor markets are so tight. Uh, Mm -hmm. Demographics are not favorable. The companies having lived through this shortage are going to be very reluctant to let people go. And that means profits are going to get squeezed. And I don't think that's in the S&P 500. If I had a bet, which I don't, I don't change my equity allocation based on my own view. But I think there's the risk that the earnings will see a shock more. They're still looking at Edward Yardeni showing like 222. The mm-hmm. SP. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if we got a shock that they actually were seven to ten percent lower than that. Wow. And if you put uh 15 to 17 PE in a mild recession on there, well, you know, your the SP is a risk. On the other hand, small value stocks all around the globe were already trading like we're in a serious recession. The three three of the funds I own. Uh, U.S. small value, international small value, emerging market value, all trading at seven to eight PEs. That's like we're in a serious. So I think the risks are more to the market like uh, portfolios. Those high tech growth stocks, uh, which have done well in the, this first quarter relative, but were the ones that got hit the most last year. If I had a gamble, which I don't, uh, I think we we could see a repeat of that. But I don't change my equity allocation uh, because of my own views. I'm 30% equities and I'm staying there because I know the market knows everything I just told you should be mm-hmm. in prices and only unexpectedly bad news uh, would move prices.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, Larry, this has been great. I uh, really appreciate talking to you. Uh, we're getting the hook here. We've got to. Got to pull the plug. We could talk for hours, uh, but uh, I appreciate your uh, your insights. I appreciate your columns for wealthmanagement.com, your books, your writings. Uh, folks can find you on your Twitter account. Uh, folks can find you on the website. Uh, I, I encourage everyone to go uh, read that market update. Uh, fantastic stuff. Thanks a lot for joining us.
1: My pleasure. I'd be happy to come back anytime. David.
0: Okay, good. We'll do it again. All right. This has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Thanks for listening.